Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Andres Spokoini. Andres is the president and CEO of the Jewish Funders Network, an organization that works with Jewish funders at the individual and collective levels to improve the quality of their giving and maximize their impact as they make the change they want to see in the world. Andres is a longtime Jewish community professional, previously serving as the CEO of the Federation in Montreal, Canada, and is the regional director for Northeastern Europe for the American Joint Distribution Committee. Originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, Andres has a multidisciplinary academic background, including business, education, and rabbinical studies in different institutions from around the world. He is fluent in Hebrew, English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and Yiddish, and is proficient in Russian and German. Welcome, Andres. It's wonderful to have you here. Bienvenido. I really loved being able to read out your bio just now, specifically that last line. Clearly, you have a linguistic acumen and it's pretty cool. So, dobs to you. I think that's actually a perfect segue to the first question, which is really about all the places in which you come from that make you who you are today. So, first of all, uh, thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a big pleasure. I I really enjoy um what you do and 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 what you try to create in terms of a Latin Jewish culture, I think it's a it's a need is a gap in the communal offer and and it's great that you try to fill it and uh, with so much grace and content and and meaning. So my family history, my personal history is a, is a little bit uh, heterodox. I was born in uh, Argentina, uh, a family of Polish Jews from both sides. Um, one side was from Warsaw, the other one was from Silesia, around Krakow. They came to Argentina very poor. And it was interesting because one side of the family was very, very socialist, very like labor activists and Yiddishists. They had my grandmother, for example, uh, she was desperate to get citizenship because she wanted to vote for Alfredo Palacios, the first socialist senator in Latin America. So it was a very sort of engaged family. The other side of the family was very, very Jewish. Again, they were very poor, but they they saved some money and they set up a neighborhood synagogue. So I got this, these two roots, the activism, not necessarily socialist anymore, but but yes, a, a history of activism and a history of the pertenencia, you know, this this idea of of being part of of a, of a Jewish community, and uh, you know my personal story, my my own my own upbringing sort of reflects a little bit that I I grew up during the military government. My mom was uh, was a single mother. We were we were also very poor. There was a deep sense of Jewish uh, belonging, and and I would say that both Judaism and Zionism became a refuge. I remember that when everything outside was repressive and dangerous and hostile, the Jewish community was the opposite. So there was that notion that the Jewish community, Israel, can be a refuge. And I think that that conditioned all my understanding of community. I mean, community is not only a nice to have for me, community is linked to a deep sense of physical and spiritual well-being. 
And that comes from my upbringing in the 70s and 80s in uh, Argentina. And then the last piece of that that formed me as a Jew was, of course, my Jewish activism in the early 80s had to do a lot with human rights. Uh, we had created something called the Jewish Movement for Human Rights during the military government. We were demonstrating against the government. We were fighting for the desaparecidos. And, and we were there in the streets. And the, and the person who led that, Marshall Meyer, who was my rabbi, as the rabbi of many Jews of my generation, and that brought me to actually study Judaism in a much serious way. I became a rabbinical student, basically I, I would say the magnetism that Marshall and his generation of rabbis sort of exerted on, on me. And the, and the rest is history. That combination made me the Jew that I am today. You know, Zionism strongly committed to issues of justice and human rights, and also deeply committed to the, to the well-being of my, of my fellow humans, whoever they may be. Oof, wow. Thank you so much, Andres. I really appreciate you giving us a peek into your life, especially what your experience was like growing up in the 70s and in the 80s during a dictatorship in Argentina. I think certainly it's it's important to hear how our life experiences have shaped our why in our lives. And I definitely see how growing up at that point in time and that place in time has led you to be the leader that you are today. So you, something you just mentioned right now is that you were in rabbinical school, but you currently don't work as a rabbi. So I'd love to know how that path led you to where you are today. Like every Jewish kid, I thought that being a rabbi was not a good job for me. So I also studied business. My, my first quote-unquote serious job was in uh, IBM, in the corporate world. But one day, as I was happily working there, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, I got a call from, from the joint, from the JDC. They were asking me if I would go to to Europe, to Eastern Europe, to help the Jewish communities that were coming out of communism and help them, you know, those that wanted to leave those countries to help them leave, but those that wanted to stay, help them both in terms of welfare, in terms of social services, but also in terms of rebuilding their communal life. And I said, I'll do it for a year. One year turned into 12. I was based in Paris in France, but I was working all over Europe, especially in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And then I got recruited to run the Jewish Federation in Montreal, in Canada. Then I got recruited again to work for the JFN. And we can talk later about what the JFN is and what do we do. But, but it, that steeped me definitely in the American Jewish experience with all this baggage, with somebody who's Argentinian, uh, deeply Argentinian, but also deeply Zionist, also very, um, very European because I spent, you know, part of my formative years there and very integrated into, into North America and into New York specifically. So I'm this mixture now, this, this identity hyphenated ad infinite, you know, only trying to decide which part is more significant. Wow. That's really great. It's amazing to hear about your, your path with the joint, with the JDC, because today in, in 2021, if we look at the former Soviet Union and wherever we see a Jewish community, it's a Jewish community that has really been restored, that has been renewed in the last 20 years. And you had a huge role in that. If you're visiting Moldova, if you're visiting Russia, if you're visiting the Ukraine, 
these communities didn't have access to Jewish life under under communism. And it really was the the fall of not just the fall of communism, but also that the, the endless work that organizations like the JDC put in to make sure that communities who were Jewish begin reviving Jewish life. And I think that's pretty amazing. So thank you for sharing all of that. Another really cool thing about hearing your story was taking note of all of the moments in which you said yes to becoming, to transforming, to evolving as a leader. I don't know if that's you naturally, someone who likes new adventures, who loves to take on new projects, or if it's something that as someone who comes from a long lineage of immigrants who have had to adapt to new environments um, and haven't had a lot of time to wonder, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? But just let's do this. So what do you think? Is it nature or is it nurture? It's, it's, I think it's epigenetic. You know, it's not hereditary. You don't carry it in your genes. But, but there is actually some studies that say that, that you do learn and the learning is so deep that it actually becomes almost genetic. So I think that, that if, you're, if, you, if you live through the immigrant experience, and, and my, I mean, I'm a second generation Argentinian, right? But the immigrant experience was very present in my family. My, my mother you always talks about, till this day, you know, stories from the old country that her parents told her. And, and the, that ethos of the immigrant that comes with nothing and, and builds herself up, it's there. It's there in the family. And I think it, it changed me for good. And, and I think that that's the stupidity of the anti-immigrant activists, that they don't realize that that's the best people you can have in a country. The people that have that drive, that self-reliance, the people that want to transcend the place where they were born and, and build a new future. So, so I guess that the immigrant experience, you know, both of my family, both of myself, and I was a luxury immigrant, like I'm not comparing myself to somebody that swims across the, the Rio Grande, right? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of general. It's kind of funny that you mentioned it because when I think of myself, I don't think of myself as somebody that is a big risk taker or, I mean, I think of myself not politically, but in terms of personality, like fairly conservative. And yet when you look at my trajectory, it looked like, well, you did take risks and you did, you know, have those yes moments. So it's it's kind of interesting, like sometimes, you know, there is this quiet courage that you don't know you have, but then it comes out when when you perceive, when you understand that there is a calling there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that analysis. Thank you so much. And, and for your own records, <laughs> now you know, you've taken a lot of big risks and those yes moments have led you down a pretty cool path. And regarding that path, I'm curious to know, based on your own experiences and your own observations, how Jewish life has been similar and differed in, in Argentina, in France, uh, working in the so former Soviet Union, Canada, New York. What are your observations? What are your thoughts? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And, and it's important to know that even in those communities, there is enormous diversity. But one of the things... Let, let, let me put it this way. The thing that sets North America apart is two things, I would say. One is the extreme decentralization of, of Jewish life. Like, yes, we have Jewish federations and we have this, but the U.S. follows a little bit the Protestant logic. You know, in the Protestant church, you don't like your church, you create another uh, denomination. You know, Argentina, France, other countries, they follow the Catholic logic. There is a Vatican. Yes, there are breakdowns 
breakout groups and whatever, but it, it, things tend to be much more centralized. Central institutions occupy um, in communal life is much, much bigger than it is in the US. Here, Obama talks to J Street, the Trump talks to whoever he talks to, Biden talks to APAC, like there's no, there's no representation. And that provides for a much richer Jewish life. Now, the big difference, though, in North America is the reliance on philanthropy. I mean, the, the place that, that private philanthropy has in Jewish life. And that colors everything. That, for example, gives reason to my organization, the Jewish Funders Network, which is an organization that would not make any sense in France or in, or in Buenos Aires, because there, uh, most of the community is based on fee-for-service. You know, there's no philanthropy. I mean, there is, but it, it doesn't occupy the same, the same role and the same place that it does in North America. So that's, that's a very difference in communities in, in Europe and in Latin America tend to be more democratic, which is surprising, but it is like AMIA, for example, the central Jewish organization in, in Buenos Aires, the, the members vote to see who the president is going to be, which would be ridiculous in a federation setting, for example. But the other, and the other big difference that I would say uh, that exists is the place of religion. So North American Jews saw themselves, and now it's changing, because now it's a little different, but they first and foremost saw themselves as a religious group. And they did that because it was functional to the integration project, meaning their priority was to integrate into the North American life, into the North American society, and because it's a society that is religiously pluralist, you know, you can be Catholic, you can be Baptist, you can be Presbyterian, you can be whatever, you can be Jewish. It's another denomination of the many that they are. On Main Street, you know, on every, on every, on every American town, you will have a Catholic church, a Presbyterian, an Episcopalian, uh, whatever, and a synagogue. Most Americans see Judaism as a, mainly as a religion. That's not the case in Latin America, or in France for that matter. Uh, in Latin America, I grew up, you know, through that, I later, st later started to be a rabbi, but I grew up with a full Jewish life without religion. <laughs> it was very cultural. We would go to the Jewish theater. We'd go to the Yiddish theater. We, we would talk about Israel. We would talk about all that. But, but it wasn't, um, but, but, but it wasn't religious at all. It was, it was mostly feeling part of a culture, feeling part, it was, it, it was also ethnic, you know, you're Ashkenazi, you're Sephardic, but the religion was a second thing. So, and that in North America, it's, uh, it, it's very different. And that's why, you know, when I read the Pew report and everybody's sort of crying out and because they say 30% of the Jews have no religion, I don't get excited about that because I know that you can have a full Jewish life and a full Jewish identity without religion. Oh, absolutely. You, you bring up a lot of really good points, especially about the influence of Christianity and how Christian hegemony essentially influences how we adapt to different communities around the world. And it's so interesting because in the United States, I completely agree with your, you know, drawing that parallel to the Protestant, to the Protestant church and Protestantism in general, is that we're so, we, we think about ourselves, even using a lot, a lot of the language that Protestants use around denominations, terms that we never, were never using before. 
And it's also interesting because what that leads us to do is it leads us to create an alternative to Christianity. So Christians have Easter. Great. That means that during that same time, we have Pesach. Okay. Christians have Christmas. Great. Well, we have Hanukkah. So we end up kind of drawing this parallel between one and the other so that we can assume that we're similar, but just approaching it from different ways. And that's entirely untrue. We have somehow adopted this way of thinking, this way of imagining our community and the way in which we practice our life at the mirror, you know, at the at the heels of Christianity. And I feel that that's interesting when I take a look at how that's also played out in different parts of the world based on what dominant Christian religion is based in that particular region. I think you're so right. And I think you're, you're touching on, on one of the biggest problems that we have. From a, from a mindset point of view, is in the 19th century, all these categories were sort of invented by thinkers, philosophers, and society sort of adopted them. And adopted them because they fit the model of Christian Europe, the concept of nation, the concept, the concept of state, the concept of religion, the concept of culture. All these constructs are, are not adequate to the Jewish experience. The name religion, for example, does not appear in the Bible. Like the term we use today, that is a modern translation. That in the Bible means something else. And that means law. All these, you know, all these concepts uh, were created for a different reality, for a Christian reality. And then we try to adapt them to Judaism. And then we try to force them on Judaism. And we end up with, you know, monstrosities, right? <laughs> like defining Judaism exclusively as a religion or exclusively the nation, you know, and those things are not, are simply the product of trying to adapt categories that don't fit us. So I think, I think you're touching into something very, very important. We need to think about Judaism in not, not in these terms, in terms that are more reflective of the Jewish reality. Actually, very funny because I only started calling them uh, denomination when I get to the, to the U.S., before them, I call them movements, <laughs> you know, the, the, the conservative movement, the reform movement. You know, now they call it denominations. And I was like, that's name sounds so Christian, <laughs> you know, and it is. All right. Let's keep this conversation going because I think it's important. I think it's, I think we should all be having it. So right on. <laughs> so let's transition to a conversation about your work. You're the CEO at the Jewish Funders Network. What does that mean? What does the Jewish Funders Network do? And what gets you excited about the work? So the Jewish Funders Network is not a, a traditional organization. It's rather a network of members. The members are funders. By funders, we mean donors, philanthropists, foundations, uh, grant makers of, any, of all walks of life. The goal is to maximize the breadth and the impact of Jewish philanthropy. In other words, we want more Jewish giving and we want better Jewish giving. By better, we mean more, more strategic, more uh, impactful, uh, more interconnected, more democratic, more transparent, and ultimately better for the Jewish community, for Israel and for the world. We have around 2,500 members in 13 countries. We're obviously an international organization. The way we we try to achieve our, our mission is by working either individually with funders uh, and collectively. Interesting things we do is bring funders together who care about an, an issue or a problem in, 
in the world and we help them work together towards a solution, right? We create roundtables, we create peer networks. And of course, we have a yearly conference and programs and webinars uh, throughout the year. For funders and organizations to do collective action around issues, I mean, is, is leveraging the power of the networks to change the world, is using the network as a vector of change. And that's what most attracts me in the work. Very cool. Very, very cool. And so one of the things that we talked a little bit about earlier, you had it in your introduction, was about democratizing philanthropy. And I'd love to hear a little bit from your perspective, given the work that you do, where you think we're able to do that and what are some ways in which have been proven to work and that are exciting for us to think about in order to engage more people in philanthropy. One of the mechanisms that have proven very interesting in democratizing the grant-making decision or the giving, actually, from, from the giving side, is the giving circles, right? Like folks that get together and, you know, there's no one big donor. There's a group of people pooling resources and deciding, you know, what to do with them. That is very interesting because it democratizes the giving side. Now, what we need is systems that do the same, but vis-a-vis the recipients. But again, you have to be careful because most of the recipients are going to tell you simply, just give me more, <laughs> you know, and that's not going to be helpful to you. It's not going to be helpful to them either. So it demands a whole exploration and, and, and a theory of participatory giving that we don't have today. Question is, can we do something that mixes personal participation, communal participation, and sort of professional assessment of, of needs? Fascinating. I, I don't think there's an easy answer, you know, and I think as philanthropy historically has been something, especially in the United States, that only a very few select amount of people have been able to be a part of in the capacity that we're talking about here, especially with the Jewish Funders Network. But I think it's something that is truly transformative to thinking about, you know, wealth and thinking about giving back and, and, and just so many other elements. And so I do think that regardless of how much you're able to give, being able to be part of a process that allows you to think about what you're willing to give up from your annual salary, from your comfort in order to make this world a better place is a value we can all lean into and that we should all have access to developing that particular skill. So definitely want to keep up with you and all the work that JFN is doing to make that the process of democratizing grant making possible. As we go into our last question, I'd love to give you the opportunity to answer it in Spanish. So I'd, I'd love to specifically know a little bit more about how your identity as an Argentinian informs all of who you are. Como profesional, como persona, como judío, ¿cómo es que tu identidad argentina influye la persona que eres hoy? Mira, en, en muchas, de muchísimas formas. En el ser argentino, el haber crecido en Argentina en un momento específico de la historia argentina me marcó profundamente. Eh, profundamente y marcó mi este, activismo mar, marca mi modelo de liderazgo eh, me, me marcó para bien y para mal o sea yo sigo haciendo algo que los argentinos hacemos que es siempre llegamos 15 minutos tarde a cualquier cita eso se considera llegar 15 minutos tarde se considera llegar temprano 
Pero hay algunas cosas que no sé si son positivas o son eh, negativas. Por ejemplo, no creer mucho en el sistema. O sea, el sistema está para, para, para digamos, oprimirte, ¿no es cierto? Cuando uno crece en una dictadura, el sistema es algo a ser vencido, algo a ser, a ser evitado, ¿no es cierto? Entonces yo hasta el día de hoy eh, no creo mucho en los sistemas, no creo mucho en procesos, eh, trato de siempre encontrar la vuelta de cómo buscar atajos en los sistemas, ¿no es cierto? O, o, o no confío mucho en ellos. No sé si es positivo o si es negativo. Desde el punto de vista ideológico hay algo que, me, que a mí me pone muy nervioso, que es que los americanos no entienden cuán frágil es la democracia y los eh, derechos humanos. A mí me, me, me sublevaba ver durante la época de Trump cómo la gente se relacionaba con los ataques a las instituciones de manera casual, como si no importase tanto, como si fuese gracioso. Hablo de gente que estaba en contra de Trump, que decía, bueno, no es para tanto, acá no puede pasar. Como argentino, eso me, me, me sacaba de las, de las castillas. Es decir, yo sé que puede pasar en cualquier lado. Si pasó en Argentina, puede pasar en cualquier lado. Y, y la fragilidad de, de los derechos humanos, de la, de la democracia, y yo creo que el tiempo me dio la razón en eso, después del 6 de, este, de, de January 6, que vimos que estuvimos a un, a un paso en realidad de, de perder la eh, democracia. Entonces yo, yo, yo creo que eso se volvió parte integral de quién soy. Wow, muchas gracias Andrés. Realmente aprecio tu sinceridad en hablar de, de tantas cosas que, que han influido en tu vida y que, nos, que hace posible que estés acá con nosotros hoy. Uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you. I hope to be able to meet you someday soon. The work y'all are doing is great. Keep it up. I want to make sure to be a part of the democratizing grant making process. So let's keep the conversation going. Big pleasure. Gracias, Andres. Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Until next time, ciao!